Gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the assurance that Jesus will come again, that he will come on the clouds of heaven where the trumpet shall sound, when the trumpet shall sound, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and those who are alive will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. We would echo uh, the closing words of the book of Revelation, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We thank you for the gospel that prepares us for such an event. We thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit that enables us to anticipate it. And we ask now for your blessing as we think through some of these things together. We ask for the blessing of the Spirit to both instruct our minds but also to thrill our hearts. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the question um, that we have this evening to consider is, when will Jesus come? We talked about the second coming last week uh, in, in broad g- general uh, terms. And I want to ask tonight, when will Jesus come? Uh, I have a text on the cover from Acts 1 and verse 7, and we'll come back to it a a little later this evening. Um, The disciples ask at the time of the ascension, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Calvin, in his commentary on this text, says there are as many errors in the question as there are words. And the answer is, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So a clear warning then about predicting Uh, the second coming. It's an absolute no-no. You know, what's the last thing that you tell your children before you leave the house? Well, some of you have children that you don't leave alone, but I I remember, I mean, I I vividly remember the first time we left our children alone, and it wasn't planned. Uh, You know, you have these discussions, and... uh, Children think it should have happened a long time ago, but you end up getting a babysitter and so on. And uh, there was a, an occasion, uh, Rosemary was at a Bible study, I think, at the church, women's Bible study, and I was at home with the children one evening, and uh, the telephone rings, and, and um, it's an emergency, I have to leave. So I, I, I just give them the 365 rules of what they're not allowed to do. And um, of all the things that I told them in, in, in the haste of leaving the house, and the children were, you know, I forget, but they were in their young 
you know, I, I forget, but they were 13 and 11 or something like that. And, um, you know, don't do this and make sure this and this and this and this and this. And then whatever else you do, do not open the door to anybody. And whatever, I mean, they, they may have broken all the others, but that one was an absolute no-no. Do not open the door to anybody. And I'll be home shortly. Well, what's the last thing that Jesus says before he um, ascends? It is not for you to know times and seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And as you can see, the church has been ignoring it ever since. So let's, uh, let's look at some of these predictions of the second coming. Um, the first one at, uh, in the year 500, and uh, there are um, three sources here, Hippolytus of Rome, Sextus, Julius Africanus, and Irenaeus, and all of them uh, predicted that Jesus would return in the year 500. One prediction was based on the dimensions of Noah's Ark. Rather curious. Um, a thousand uh, A.D., which, and, and of course you, you can understand um, uh, A.D. 1000 being, being a, a sort of right time for Jesus to come. Uh, he would know, of course, about the, the calendar change and all of that, but... but uh, 1000 AD, the, the millennium apocalypse at the end of the Christian um, millennium. And uh, following the failure of January the 1st, um, in the year 1000, some theorists propose that the end would occur a thousand years after Jesus' death. So 1033 um, became an alternative. Uh, 1504, Sandro Botticelli, who believed he was living in the tribulation period and that the millennium would begin three and a half years from 1500. Uh, the number three and a half, of course, uh, being significant in some aspects of the book of uh, Revelation. 1524, uh, Johannes uh, Stoffler. A planetary alignment in Pisces was viewed by this astrologer as a sign of the millennium. Uh, 1524 to 1526, Thomas Munzer, uh, an Anabaptist. Uh, 1533, October the 19th, a mathematician by the name of Stifel. Uh, judgment day would start at 9 in the morning. Uh, the fifth monarchists uh, during the time of the Puritan era, and uh, they were on the extreme uh, right, I suppose, of the Puritan movement, or was it on the extreme left? Um, but they were, they were uh, given to all kinds of, um, of uh, dreams and visions and so on. And uh, William Aspinwall uh, predicted 1673 as uh, a likely date for Jesus to return. Uh, some of you know the bottom of the page, 1757, uh, the Swedenborg. Uh, the, there's a denomination of Swedenborgians, and 
There's a movement called Swedenborgianism. And uh, if there are any Swedes present, uh, following the last judgment in 1757, which took place in the spiritual world, uh, this was one of many events recounted in his works resulting from visions of Christ. Um, Oh, uh, 1814, Christmas Day of 1814, Johanna Southcott, 64-year-old, claimed she was pregnant with Christ, with a Christ child, and that he would be born on Christmas Day, 1814. She died on the day of her prediction, and an autopsy proved she was not pregnant. Fascinating. Uh, the rappers in 1829... And uh, they'll return, George Rapp will return again. He had a second go at it. Uh, John Wesley, in 1836, uh, founder of the Methodist Church, uh, he wrote that Revelation 12:14 referred to the years 1058 to 1836, when Christ would come. Um, Jacob Lorbe, an Austrian musician, um, wrote a vast amount during a 24-year uh, period in which he claimed an inner voice of Christ spoke to him, uh, somewhere between 1840 and 1864. Um, the Millerites, um, some Millerites continued to set dates, others founded the Seventh-day Adventist Church uh, and the Advent Christian Church, which continue to expect a a soon second coming, but no longer sets dates for it. Uh, George Rapp again on the, on the next page. Um, let's go down. Uh, 1863, John Rowe, founder of the Christian Israelite Church. Uh, the Russell, Charles Taze, 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 Russell, Jehovah Witnesses. The first president um, of what is now the Watchtower Society of the Jehovah Witnesses, calculated 1874 to be the year of Christ's second coming. Taught that Jesus was invisibly present and ruling from the heavens from that, uh, from that date onwards. Um, the Mormons, 1891, Joseph Smith uh, in volume two of the history of the church and pontificates on page 182 uh, of uh, about the year 1891. Uh, 1915, uh, Jehovah Witnesses, the second coming is important, of course, to the Jehovah Witnesses. Anybody who's read a copy of the Watchtower will, will know that. Um, and... Um, they, do not, they don't use that term, second coming. Jehovah Witnesses believe that Christ's, Christ is visible to humans. Uh, Christ's visible return will be at Armageddon. And they believe that 1914 marked the beginning of Christ's invisible presence. As the king of God's kingdom and so on. Um, Sun Myung Moon, uh, the, the Moonies, uh, the followers of the Reverend Sun Myung Moon, 
um, consider him to be the Lord of Second Advent called by Jesus Christ on Easter Day at the age of 15 on a Korean mountain site. So he is the second coming. Um, we'll pass on down. Some of you will know Herbert Armstrong uh, from uh, the Radio Church of God. Um, let's, go, let's go down to Harold Camping in 1994. Harold Camping, uh, who is uh, general manager of Family Radio uh, and, a, and a Bible teacher, published a book called 1994 Question Mark. And it was a prediction of Christ's um, second uh, coming. Uh, and if you pop over to the next page, he has a couple of more goes at it uh, uh, since it didn't happen. Uh, in 1994. So 2011, he had two stabs at it, one in May and one in October. Uh, He claimed that the rapture would be on May the 21st, 2011. He must have been very disappointed um, knowing that he was still there on um, May the 22nd, uh, believing as he does in what the rapture signified. Uh, Jerry Falwell, uh, 1999 to 2009. Uh, the second coming would be within 10 years. He predicted that uh, in 1999, Jerry Falwell. Uh, Ed Dobson, uh, some of you know Ed Dobson, pastor at the end, why Jesus could return by AD 2000. Um, Isaac Newton. Uh, the Isaac Newton, uh, Christ's millennium, uh, would begin in the year 2000 uh, in his book, Observations Upon the Prophecies of Daniel and the Apocalypse of St. John. Uh, he was a better scientist than he was a predictor of the second coming, of course. Um, Jack Van Impey, uh, the, the TV evangelist, um, 2012, uh, 2015, September the 28th, just a few months ago, uh, Mark Blitz, teaching that Christ's return would correspond with the September 28th, 2015 lunar eclipse. Uh, some, of you, some of you were telling me at the door of the church about the blue moon thing, the whole blue moon prophecy, and you got all caught up in it, um, and you know who you are. And that all passed by. Uh, Gene Dixon, 2020. Uh, The the alleged psychic uh, claimed that Armageddon would take place in 2020 and Jesus would return to defeat the unholy trinity of the Antichrist, Satan, and the false prophet between 2020 and 2037. And there are more uh, from various uh, folk here. Kent Hovind uh, wrote a demon degree uh, from the Patriot Bible University and published it. When is the Lord coming back? And he, he, he states in that demon thesis, during the Feast of Trumpets in 2028. Well, despite what Jesus said, uh, let's, let's, let's have a quick look at... Um, 
Can we predict the second coming of Jesus? Well, there are two warnings in the Bible, two very clear, very specific warnings why you shouldn't do this. Uh, one is in Acts 1-7. Uh, we read it together at the time of the ascension of Jesus. Um, the disciples say to him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus responds, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And then earlier in uh, the Olivet uh, discourse in Mark 13, Jesus specifically says that he himself doesn't know when the second coming will be. He's talking, of course, in his human mind. In his divine mind, he knows everything, but in his human mind, he says, concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. It's, it's very clear. You don't need, it's not rocket science. You don't need an a, a, a deg- advanced degree in theology to understand what Jesus is saying. That information with regard to an accurate prediction of the date of the second coming is not something that is given to the Son in his incarnate state. He had information that was necessary for the fulfillment of his redemptive mission. And the date of the second coming was not part of that information. He didn't know. So why should we know? So he didn't know, and he tells his disciples that it's not for you to know times and seasons, and yet the church has constantly been doing the very opposite, and, and publishing books, and, and getting on the radio, and TV, and, and getting people all worked up uh, that they know when the second coming is taking place. Well, it's not quite as simple as that. What exactly is being predicted Because the nature of the second coming is viewed differently by different people. We talked last week about the second coming and a constellation of events that surround the second coming. Uh, there, are, there are various things that appear either before or, or, or at the time of or perhaps after the second coming. And, and Christians will differ as to the um, sequence of events. Uh, The appearance of Antichrist, uh, the appearance of the man of sin, uh, the battle of Armageddon, um, the salvation of the fullness of Israel. Add to that another complication, and that is that in a certain branch of Christianity, we generally, generally label it as dispensational. So the, um, the uh, Ryrie Study Bible, uh, for example, speaks of a twofold coming of Jesus. There's a coming of Jesus for the saints otherwise known as the rapture, 
sometimes known as the secret rapture, where Jesus doesn't come all the way down to the earth. He, he remains in the clouds, and the saints are raptured. They're, they're, they're taken away. The saints who are alive are taken away. And, and there are differences of opinion about saints who are already dead and, and their bodies and so on, and, and whether or not there's a resurrection. And there are various strands within uh, those prophetic uh, movements. And then they go to a, a marriage supper, uh, which lasts for seven years, and then Jesus comes with his saints. He comes for his saints, and then he comes with his saints. And this time he comes all the way down uh, to Jerusalem and so on, and to reign on the earth. So it's a twofold coming. So, so what are they actually predicting? Are they predicting the rapture, or are they predicting the, the second coming that comes seven years after the rapture? So these dates aren't and always clear as to what it is they're predicting. And, and some of them can have two bites at the cherry here, that, that, that if one of them fails, they were actually predicting the other part of it. Are, are there signs? Question number three. Are there signs that enable us to trace a trajectory towards the second coming? That's a, more, uh, that's a more nuanced question. That's a important question. Uh, and there are three or perhaps um, four particular issues, three, three that I want to emphasize. One is um, the preaching of the gospel to all nations. Two is the salvation of the fullness of, um, sorry, um, let me back up. The first is signs that evidence the progress of the gospel. And under that heading, I have two, um, two thoughts here. Two, two, two things fall under this heading. Uh, the preaching of the gospel to all nations. Let's look at the first one. Um, Mark 13 and verse 10. Again, this occurs, this verse occurs in Mark 13, in the Olivet Discourse, right? Mark 13, Luke 21, Matthew 24, um, are the chapters in the Gospels that contain all the teaching about the second coming that Jesus gave on Mount Olivet. And it's in that heavily um, eschatological passage that Jesus says, and the Gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Right, this chapter, and, and we'll be looking at this chapter together, we'll be looking at the Olivet Discourse together, and, and it's, it's an important chapter in the Gospels about eschatology, about last things. But the chapter reaches its culmination in the second coming. And before that, it talks about various things that must occur various things that are, that are manifested between now and the second coming in what we call the last days. And we're already in the last days. We've been in the last days since Pentecost. You know, and, and just because stuff happens, bad things happen, earthquakes or famines or, or a bad 
president or, or whatever happens, that doesn't mean to say, as, as all of us know, someone who says we must be in the last days because X, Y, or Z has happened. We've, we've been in the last days since Pentecost. But Jesus is evidently saying here that the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. What does that mean? Is that a general statement, that the gospel must move from Jerusalem and to the Gentile nations? And there's a sense in which you could look at the Acts of the Apostles. The gospel moves from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the world. Right? And at the end of Acts 28, the, the gospel has spread, you could say in a general sense, has spread to all the world, the, the known world of the first century. Or, or is this verse saying something much more than that, as some insist? Uh, folk like John Piper, right? John Piper. The reason God decreed that the gospel would obtain people from every tribe and people and nation is that the aim of the gospel is the glorification of His grace and this ingathering of diverse peoples into one Christ-exalting unified people who would glorify the power and beauty of His grace more than if He had done things another way. John Piper has long sentences. There is a strong confirmation of this in noticing that several texts which command the pursuit of all ethnic groups are explicit that this pursuit is for the glory of Christ. Now, a part of what John Piper is saying, and it's a part of of the emphasis of his ministry as a whole, is that the gospel must be preached to all people groups before Jesus comes. Every known people group must have some demonstrable preaching of the gospel before Jesus comes again. Now, according to the Joshua Project, and, and, and Piper, of course, is involved in that, as was that conference which began a couple of years ago, a name of which I've forgotten now, but uh, according to the Joshua project as of February 16th of last year, there are 16,598 people groups in the world. 7,165 of these are unreached, fewer than 2% evangelical. So, So, on, on that reading, right, if, you, if you take a strict reading of this text, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations, there are still 7,165 people groups that do not have the gospel. The gospel has not reached them yet. There's no credible preaching of the gospel. There's no Bible. There's, there's nothing in, in this, this entity, this sociologically... A defined people group. Now, I don't wish to go into this in any great detail. How do you define a people group? What's the definition of a people group? And what's the definition of reached versus unreached? When does, 
when does unreached become reached? At what point does that happen? Right, and those are important missiological questions, and, and there are guys here who can answer that question, and he's sitting right there. Uh, but that's the stuff that missiologists uh, talk about, and, and, and it's important. It's very important. And I don't have answers to that. I'm ju- I'm, and for tonight, for the purposes of this evening, I simply want to say, my, my point is, that if that's true, and if, if even only a part of that is true, even if we can't fully define what a people group is or what an unreached people group is, if such a thing exists and it is necessary for the gospel to be preached to that people group, Jesus can't come in the next five seconds. Four. Three. Two. Right? That's the point. So the, so the, the second coming of Jesus can't be at any moment, if that's true. And if that is true, it provides, at least in broad, general terms, a way of not predicting the date of the second coming, but of drawing a trajectory towards a second coming. Does that make sense? Now, defining things... um, uh, somewhat differently, the research arm of the Southern International Missions, Southern Baptist International Missions Board, that should be, Southern Baptist International Missions Board, estimates 11,310 people groups of 1,405 are unreached and 3,100 are unengaged. Now, that only demonstrates that it's not the easiest thing in the world to define what a people group is, and it's not the easiest thing in the world to define what, what reached means and unengaged means. So, so there are differences of, of opinion here between various uh, branches. My point is simply to say that if that's true, and if we are to interpret Mark 13.10 in a more specific way than in a general way in which it could be fulfilled by Acts 28, it does provide at least some trajectory towards not predicting the date, but a trajectory towards where history is going and what our task is to hasten the second coming of Jesus. Yes, I use the word hasten. I'm a Calvinist. I believe everything is ordered and pre-ordered. But hasten. Even so, come quickly. How is that going to be fulfilled? By mission would be the answer of this particular passage. You need to go and reach these people groups. You need to send your children there. You need to send your grandchildren there. You need to be ready to give up your children and your grandchildren. They live in the other most, uttermost parts of the world to hasten the second coming of Jesus. That's, that's, that's the program. It's, it's very much on the agenda of uh, our, our brothers and sisters at, in the Southern Baptist Convention this year. That very idea. Um, Signs evidencing the progress of the gospel. That, that's one of them. Uh, another one is the salvation of the fullness of Israel. 
And again, I don't want to go into all of the details um, here tonight, um, and we may come back to some of these later in the course of our uh, semester together. But this is uh, Romans eleven twenty six, uh, and and again we, we, we'll we'll have a little look at this uh, later. But this is a complex argument of Paul about the salvation of Gentiles and the salvation of Jews, elect Gentiles, elect Jews. But then in eleven twenty six, he says. And in this way, well, let's go back to verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. The Jews don't believe in Jesus. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, is this saying, as some have said in the past, within the Reformed tradition, perhaps the majority said this in the past, certainly, certainly at the Westminster Assembly, for example, Presbyterians and, um, and, and Congregationalists and, and Episcopalians and others who were representative at the uh, Westminster Assembly, um, were probably divided... 50-50 between, uh, um, on this issue about, about Romans 11:26 and, and other issues re- uh, relating to the millennium. Many of the Puritans believed that before Jesus comes, there would be, Israel has been, there's a partial hardening, and then the Gentiles are saved, and then there would be an ingathering in that last generation or two before Jesus comes, there would be an ingathering from among Jews. So that, and, and this would lend, and again, this is for later, but this would lend to a sort of post millennial view of the future that because a great multitude, millions perhaps, of Jews in that final generation or two would come to saving faith, that, that, would, that would change the statistics a great deal as to whether there's faith on the earth when Jesus comes. Now again, my point tonight is not to prove that interpretation or or whether Israel just means Jews and Gentiles, um, whether Israel in verse 26 means Jews and elect Jews and elect Gentiles rather than specifically uh, Jews. My point is not to convince you one way or another on the interpretation of that verse tonight. My, My point is simply to say, if... If a generation of Jews must come to Jesus before, Je- before Jesus comes again, well, it's not February the, whatever this is, 10th. Jesus isn't going to come on February the 10th. Right? He's not going to come in the next five seconds because there's unfulfilled prophecy here. Plus, all right, and this is the other thing I just want to sow a thought in your head, if you were to interpret Romans eleven twenty six in that way, that there would be a worldwide conversion of Jews before Jesus comes, that would provide you with a trajectory 
towards the second coming. It wouldn't enable you to date the second coming, but it would certainly provide a, traje a trajectory towards it. Uh, so there are signs then evidencing the progress of the gospel. There are other signs, different kinds of signs. Um, and again, we will look at these later. Um, tribulation. That before Jesus comes, there will be tribulation. The great tribulation, not just have we trials and temptations, is there trouble anywhere, but, but we're talking about a great tribulation, a tribulation like none other. Right, and we're tempted from time to time to think that, you know, times have never been so bad. And a kind of pessimism comes. And, and, and so history goes through cycles of optimism and pessimism. Or, or apostasy. Does the Bible predict, as, as seemingly it does, that before Jesus comes, there, there would be widespread apostasy? Uh, the appearance of Antichrist, or uh, Antichrist would be a, a, a John term for it, or, or, or the man of sin, the man of lawlessness, uh, which is Paul's term for it. And, and is Paul talking about an individual, not just, not just in general terms, but an individual that could be identified as the Antichrist or the man of sin? And again, there have been all kinds of attempts to name him. Now, if those things, if those things are to happen before Jesus comes... They, they don't provide you with an ability to date the second coming, but they do provide you with a trajectory towards the second coming. Who is this Antichrist figure? Or what is this Antichrist figure? Who is this man of sin figure? Or, or what is it? Now, of course, in the 17th century, in the Westminster Confession, it's been altered now in our uh, version of it, the one that we subscribe here. Um, but in the original Westminster Confession, of course, the Antichrist was identified as the Pope. That Antichrist. Or signs um, indicating divine judgment, uh, wars, earthquakes, uh, famines, and so on. And these, these are things that we see when we look at uh, the Olivet Discourse in Mark 13, or Luke 21, Matthew 24. We'll, we'll see that Jesus says that, that these things will happen. Wars, earthquakes, and famines. And are they just that the last days generally will include these things, which is certainly true? Or is it saying more than that, that there will be an increase of these things prior to the second coming? Now, another factor in, in trying to answer this specific question of can you date the second coming is the issue of the millennium. And again, we're going to look at this in, in the course of our studies together, but I'm trying to get some building blocks in our thinking before we look at these sort of individually. There are those in this room 
I'm sure, who believe that the millennium that's spoken of in Revelation chapter 20, the thousand years that's spoken of in Revelation chapter 20, occurs after Jesus comes. So there will be the return of Christ, and then there will be the millennium. Right? That, that's a pre-millennial view. The second coming is pre, before the millennium. And that's, uh, that's, a, that's a historic... We're not talking about dispensationalism now. We're talking about historic premillennialism, and we're going to devote a whole evening to talk about um, historic premillennialism. And that's uh, that's a, a, a view that's perfectly compatible uh, with uh, with the Reformed faith and and uh, Westminster Confession and everything else. But if you reverse that, if you say no, the millennium in Revelation 20 occurs before Jesus comes. Well, then, if you, if you can at least identify the millennium when it's here, right? when the millennium comes, you'll know it's here. It's not, it's not a secret thing. Now, there are those who think that the millennium is the entire period from Pentecost to the second coming. That's no help then to predict the second coming. We're in the millennium. We're in the thousand years right now. Hands up those who believe that. Me. Right? I'm, I'm telling you up front, that's probably where I am. But if you, if you believe that the millennium is something that happens just before Jesus comes, as, say, a lot of the Puritans did, then when... When that millennium begins, and it begins with extraordinary blessing, because one of the things that happens during the millennium is that Satan is bound. And what happens at the end of the millennium? Satan is released again, and there's tribulation, and there's the Antichrist, and there's the man of sin. None of those things, now that provides you, at least with a sort of a chronology if, if the millennium hasn't occurred yet, and, and you believe that the second coming, coming comes after the millennium, Jesus isn't going to come in the next five seconds. The millennium has to happen first. And that would have been the view of, of many of the Puritans, for example. So, so I'm, I'm simply trying to address a specific question tonight. Can you predict the second coming of Jesus? Now, let me, uh, let me use a phrase here. Um, is the second coming imminent or impending? But by imminent, I mean, can the second coming happen at any moment? Right? Mo- most people who believe in an any moment view of the second coming are really not talking about the second coming. They're talking about the rapture. I don't, I don't believe in the secret rapture. I don't think it's in the Bible. But, but many, many Christians do believe in a secret rapture. And that's what they usually mean when they say that Jesus can come at any moment. What they're thinking is, you know, you can be driving along and the person in front has been raptured. When the car veers off the road and so on, and there's nobody driving it. The rapture is taking place. The, the question that we have to ask 
I think, is this. Are there any predicted events that must happen before Jesus returns? Is there there one event, just one? Actually, I think there are many that must happen before Jesus comes. But if there is at least one, you, you don't then believe in an imminent return of Jesus. You believe in, well, the word is impending. And it's a word that Anthony Hukma has used, and it's, it's gained some currency in, uh, in, our, in our sort of circles. So rather than talk about the imminent return, some people now talk about the impending return. All of the things that the Bible predicts must happen before Jesus comes could happen within our lifetime. It could happen within a generation. So, uh, Hukuma says, we must be prepared for the possibility that the parousia, the second coming, may yet be a long way off and the New Testament data leave room for that possibility. On the other hand, to affirm with certainty that the parousia is still a long way is to say too much. The exact time of the parousia is unknown to us. Neither do we know exactly how the signs of the times will intensify. This uncertainty means that we must always be ready. So what's, what's you know, if you, if, you, if you pin me to the wall and said, so what, what do you think about the second coming? I would say we should live our lives as though it could take place within our lifetime. I do, I do not think it's going to happen tonight. I don't think it's going to happen tomorrow. But I do think it could happen within our lifetime. That, that would be my, my answer to it. Now, that raises a gazillion questions, I'm sure. Right? And there will be questions in this period. Right? So let's, let's get ready for some questions in the next few weeks. So start, start writing down your questions. And uh, we'll have a big Q&A session at the end. And uh, I may rope in a few more to help me out with that. Um, But our time is gone. And uh, we should live with the impending nature of the second coming. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. Thank you that you have uh, so written the course of history to provide markers that provide certainty and direction that history is going forwards towards a definite goal. We're not living in endless cycles of repetition. Father, we thank you that in the gospel you prepare us for such an eventuality, that when Jesus comes again, we are ready. Help us to be ready. Help us to live our lives with that possibility in mind as we make decisions, important decisions about our future and preparing for the future. That there is always that possibility that we may never die but be taken in that final generation to be with the Lord Jesus as the dead in Christ rise first and those who are alive 
are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Uh, Bless us, we pray. We ask for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.